morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Romans 7, 14 to 25. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 943. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Romans 7, 14 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. All right, so um, J.C. Ryle is a 19th century English church leader, once wrote, the child of God has two great marks, his inner peace and his inner warfare. Okay, so... That quote is kind of the inspiration for this little brief two-part series. We started it last week. We finish it this morning. So one week was on inner peace, one week on inner warfare. So last week, inner peace from Philippians 4, and this week, inner warfare. So the Bible has a lot to say about both of those issues, inner peace and inner warfare. And it's also helpful, I think, to consider them back-to-back. So the title of this series is Vital Signs, um, you know, Vital Signs and medicine like temperature and pulse and respiration and blood pressure. Um, so those things in a medical context give important information about a person's physical health. When it comes to our spiritual health and vitality, there's probably a number of ways that we could take our vital signs, but we're just looking at these two, inner peace, inner warfare. But this series is not just aimed at assessing spiritual health. It's aimed at that. How am I doing? But also cultivating spiritual health. Okay? So we're not just asking the question, am I spiritually healthy? But we're pursuing spiritual health. Okay? So <clears throat> as we dive into this theme of inner warfare, how many of you, was it back in high school, um, anybody familiar with the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Okay, a few of you, even if you didn't read the book, you probably have an idea of what the thing is about. So the good Dr. Jekyll was keenly aware of this struggle 
within him. He longed to be rid of this battle between what was good and what was bad. It's kind of like they're always ruining the fun of the other one, right? The good conscientious impulse is always ruining the uh, bad impulse and it's fun and vice versa. So here's how Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson describes Dr. Jekyll's struggle. With every day I thus drew steadily nearer to the truth that man is not truly one, but truly two. I learned to recognize the thorough duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. So he writes elsewhere that good and evil are so close as to be chained together in the soul. He even called himself, in one place, an incongruous compound. And then there's this. I had learned to dwell with pleasure as a beloved daydream on the thought of the separation of these elements. If each, I told myself, could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust might go his way, delivered from the aspirations and remorse of his more upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of this extraneous evil. It was the curse of mankind that these incongruous things were thus bound together, that in the agonized womb of consciousness these polar twins should be continuously struggling. How then were they to be separated? So if you know the book, he concocts a potion. Okay? So the potion then separates the two. And what happens in the book is he toggles back and forth between two identities. At one point he's Dr. Jekyll and then he's Mr. Hyde. But he got more than he bargained for. So when he took the potion and became Mr. Hyde, the strength of the evil surprised him. So, another quote here. There was something strange in my sensations. This is after he took the potion. Something indescribably sweet. He's speaking as Mr. Hyde. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body. Within, I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill race in my fancy, a solution of the bonds of obligation. I don't have to worry about the bonds of obligation anymore. An unknown but innocent freedom of the soul. I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. So Edward Hyde was pure evil. So Dr. Jekyll knew this inner warfare, and he longed to separate the bad from the good and be free from the conflict. Anybody resonate with that? So he concocted a potion, but the evil overtook him and consumed him. So Robert Louis Stevenson obviously knew this inner conflict. And it seems that he was familiar with the Bible, that he got some of these thoughts from the Bible. In fact, he was apparently raised in a devoted Christian home. 
He gives a little hint that the Bible was informing his thoughts. Did you catch it? Sold a slave to my original evil. You know where that comes from? Tyler read it. It's Romans 7. So we're going to start by considering the inner conflict. Looking at Romans 7, verses 14 to 24. Okay? So if you want to turn back there, again, it's on page 943. If you're using a pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew there for you. So this passage describes really clearly this inner conflict. And there's been a lot of debate over the years. Is Paul speaking as an unbeliever? Like, is he speaking about his experience before he became a Christian? Or is this afterwards? Um, not going to go into all those debates. Um, it seems like the, the evidence leans in the direction of he's speaking this way as a believer, describing the struggle. So isn't that encouraging that the Apostle Paul, as you know, spiritual and mature as he was, could describe his internal struggle like this? Because don't you resonate with this? Resonate with the struggle in Romans 7? So, here we go. For we know that the law, I mean, just, you've you got to, like, we're not going to spend a ton of time unpacking these verses, but we've got to read this slowly. It's, it's kind of shocking what he says, and very, very insightful. So, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, it's good, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's the phrase that Robert Louis Stevenson picks up on with Dr. Jekyll's words. For I do not understand my own actions. One of the questions you need to ask is, who's the I when Paul is writing here? You can, you can see that there's He's divided. There's conflict within. So, okay, which I is this? I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. So that's a renewed I. You see? But I do the very thing I hate. Why do I hate it? Because I'm a new creature, because I have the Spirit of God. That's why I hate it. But here I'm still struggling, and I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it. You see the separation? But sin that dwells within me. So, divided self, a person at war within himself. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. See, he has to clarify who he means by me at this point. Because there's the sinful fleshly him, and there's the new him in Christ. For I have the desire to do what is right, but apart from the Spirit of God, apart from Christ, I do not have the ability to carry it out. The fleshly me does not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Which he's not trying to pass off his sin as if he's not culpable, as if he's not guilty. He's trying to say, this power is real. And it does stuff. So, I find it to be a law, a principle, a dynamic that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I also see in my members another law, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Aren't you glad this chapter is in the Bible? You ever feel like this? You ever kind of like, you might not use these exact words, but like, oh, I hate this. So we know the good we ought to do. You know the bad you ought not to do. And our conscience will say one thing. Our desires oftentimes say another. And sadly, our desires often win. So I think we do need to ask this question. I need to kind of point this out so that we can see an important difference here. Is the inner conflict the same after we become a Christian as it is before? Before we become a Christian, you know, before you became a Christian, maybe you thought that, you know, if the good outweighs the bad, I'll I'll probably be okay. I mean, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody is. But, you know, basically we're good. Some, Some of you may have believed that. A lot of people that you rub shoulders with believe that. At least they give lip service to that. But actually, I don't think anybody really believes that. Because, you know what, if we really believe that people were basically good, why do we judge and condemn people all the time? Like, why are we constantly assessing ourselves on a ladder of righteousness relative to the people around us? I mean, there's, certainly we did this before we became Christians, but we continue to do this sometimes. It's like a caste system that we're subscribing to. We envy some people, and we look down on other people. So you're conflicted inside. You're trying to deal with that conflict by means of not being too bad or being fairly good or, you know, moral. But we've got all this guilt and remorse and shame and regret, and we try to quiet that guilt by pointing out, you know, how we're not as bad as others. We might point it out to ourselves. We might defend ourselves before other people. We point to the good that we've done, but it doesn't work. You cannot self-atone. You can't do DIY righteousness. We can't justify ourselves. And actually, all those efforts are actually mercenary. It's like a a guy marrying, like a young guy marrying an old woman for her money. Like, ooh, you see? That's mercenary. So we do the good works not because, we, we try to be moral, not because we love God, but because 
We want to feel better about ourselves. So before becoming a Christian, there is conflict. But we're not doing good for goodness sake, for God's glory's sake. We're doing it for our own sake, to make us feel better or look better. Actually, there's an interesting way that Robert Louis Stevenson points this out in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So after Dr. Jekyll was shocked and scared by the power of his Mr. Hyde self, he is actually starting, like he had to take the potion in the first place to kind of separate out, but then he starts to become Mr. Hyde like in his sleep. He doesn't even need the potion anymore. And so he's scared and he's trying really hard. He kind of doubles down and he, he's you know, really, really good for a few months and even empties his bank account in charitable giving. And there's this moment where he's sitting on a park bench thinking about how good he's been over the last few months and kept Mr. Hyde at bay. And he's horrified to look down and see his hands deforming. He's becoming Mr. Hyde while he sits on the bench. By, by thinking about how good he'd been, you see, his, his good works were selfish, and he's actually feeding the inner hide. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I del- deliver up my body to be burned, but it's not from love. It's trying to justify myself, help myself feel better about myself. I gain nothing. So all this to say, the inner conflict before someone becomes a Christian is very different from the inner conflict after conversion. So trying to escape the conflict, trying to find freedom by means of morality or by means of immorality, is not going to free us. Either way, we cannot free ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves. Wretched men and women that we are, who will deliver us? So thankfully, we don't have to fight this battle alone. In fact, the decisive battle is already won. So this is where... Romans 7, on its own, actually doesn't give you the solution. It just describes the problem. Okay? But the decisive battle is won. So, you know, we are the enemy. You know that cartoon, we are the enemy? I I met the enemy, and he is us. Um, You know, look in the mirror. So as a result of Adam plunging the whole human race into sin, we're all natural-born enemies of God. You know, we don't want God to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. Or we just do enough. We want to do enough, kind of like paying a spiritual tax in order to get the blessings that we want and to avoid, you know, what we fear. But naturally, we're at odds with God. We don't love Him. Our selfishness is just diametrically opposed to God. So we're actually born fighting a losing battle. We're fighting against God as God. Like, pick a fight with God. You're not going to win that one. That's not going to go well. It's a battle we can't win. But that also leads to an internal conflict that we can't win because we're made in God's image by him. 
His law is stamped on our souls. We know we're guilty. <laughs> Sorry. We love you, Linda. It's okay. Um, so we know we're not guilty. We know we're not perfect. There's this internal battle. No potion's going to fix us. Our efforts are never going to deliver us. The law of God is good, but it is powerless to change us from the inside out. In fact, it ends up kicking up more sin, right? You know? There's this section in Augustine's Confessions when he stole some fruit from, a, from an orchard. He didn't do it because he was hungry. Do you know why he did it? He did it because someone told him not to. The law hits a hard heart and, oh yeah, says who? Kicks up more sin. So the battle line of good and evil runs through every human heart. So neither morality or immorality can bring peace and freedom. Lawfulness and lawlessness only exacerbate the problem. But there is one who fought for us. Jesus is the divine warrior. So thankfully, he didn't come to earth to make war with us, even though we deserve it. He came to save us. And he came with the gospel of peace to make peace with his enemies. Okay, so just a couple quick examples of this here. So, you know, we have this, God has this cosmic arch enemy, Satan, and Satan loves to blind the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of God in the face of Christ, to see his beauty and his mercy and his love and his kindness and his patience and his saving power. But by the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, blind eyes can see. So Jesus came to plunder Satan's kingdom, the domain of darkness. Okay? I love what Jesus said in Luke 11, 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What in the world is that all about? Well, Jesus was saying this in explanation after casting out a demon from a man. So the people are marveling at this. And, but some said, oh, he's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus responds with the well-known line, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, right? So if Jesus is actually casting out demons by Satan's power, then Satan is shooting himself in the foot. But, Luke eleven twenty. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the king is here. He is bringing his kingdom. He's casting out the enemies and the threats, and he's establishing his peace. So just like God in the Old Testament came to the strong man in Egypt, Pharaoh, and in a sense bound him and plundered Egypt and delivered his people. So Jesus comes and binds Satan and works an even greater exodus deliverance, plundering the house of the so-called strong man. So Jesus came to set us free. He came to defang the ancient serpent. He came to depose sin from its reign in our lives. It, it was ruling us, and he says, that throne is for me. And he triumphs over everything that holds us captive. Look at Colossians 2, 13 to 
15 here. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in uncircumcision of your flesh, spiritually deadened to God, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So sin and Satan have no ruling power anymore for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. So it seemed like Jesus was disarmed, seemed like he was put to open shame, and that Satan had triumphed over him, but oh no. The very weakness and apparent failure of the cross is where God worked the ultimate mighty victory. Jesus Jesus triumphed over his enemies. So it was at the weakest moment that Jesus declares it is finished and he stomps on the head of the ancient serpent and he makes atonement for all our sin so that we could be at peace with God, reconciled to God. (coughs) And so we can know peace within. The decisive battle has been won. And actually now what that means is we are enabled to fight the war against the flesh and the world and the devil. Okay, I've I've used this illustration before, but it it illustrates it so well. World War II, D-Day, began June 6, 1944, when the Allied forces invaded Normandy, right? So that lasted through August, when troops reached Paris and liberated France, effectively turning the tide of the war, and all but ensuring the Allied victory, right? But when was Victory in Europe Day? The day when the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany was actually formally accepted. Not until May 8th, 1945. Okay, so there was August to May. That's almost a year. And there was, there were battles in between and All of them were horrible, but the decisive battle was won and the final victory was certain. So I love how Tim Keller puts this as far as the difference between the battle before we're a Christian and after we become a Christian. He said something like this, the war between ourselves, the internal conflict before conversion, is a battle we cannot win. But the war we fight between ourselves after conversion is a battle we cannot lose. So before we believe the gospel, we're fighting a battle we can't win. We're we're fighting God. We can't fix the internal conflict of our guilt and our sin. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. And if God is for us, who can be against us? You're fighting a battle you can't lose. So here's the logic of the gospel. The battle is won, so fight. Does that sound weird? Well, think about it like this. You remember when David killed Goliath? The Israelite soldiers were energized and empowered to fight the Philistine enemy. Before, they were cowering in fear. But David won the decisive battle. The Lord was on their side, and in the strength of their champion, they fought. 
prior to that, they cowered in fear. So the battle is won decisively. So now we can make war. Now we can fight. So Romans 7 doesn't really tell us how. Okay, we need to look elsewhere. You can look in chapter 6. There's some helpful, practical ways that we fight there. We're not going to look at that so much this morning. Romans 8, we're going to look at that a little bit. Look at a couple other passages. So how do we make war? How do we battle? If the decisive battle is won, now we can fight. So how do we do that? And remember, if you're in Christ, you are now fighting a battle you can't lose. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're not fighting a losing battle. So we certainly should never downplay the decisiveness of the power, the glory of the victory of King Jesus. We are no longer enemies of God. If you're in Christ, if he's your Savior, God is no longer your enemy. He's your friend. He's your ally. He's your king. He is for you. But that victory does not mean that we just kind of coast into heaven on a fluffy pillow. Listen to J.C. Ryle. <clears throat> he says, Sanctification is a thing which does not prevent a man having a great... It does not prevent a man having a great deal of inward spiritual conflict. By conflict, I mean a struggle within the heart between the old nature and the new, the flesh and the spirit, which are to be found together in every believer. Old nature and new, together in every believer. A deep sense of that struggle and a vast amount of mental discomfort from it are no proof that a man is not sanctified. A true Christian is one who is not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. Inward conflict is no proof that a man is not holy. The heart of the best Christian, even at his best, is a field occupied by two rival camps. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He quotes 1 John 1. And then he quotes Samuel Rutherford here. This is great. The devil's war, the devil's war is better than the devil's peace. Wouldn't you rather have the devil's war or would you like to be lulled to sleep and have peace with the devil because he is not really worried about you? You're not a threat because you're just kind of doing his bidding. You see? So the devil's war is better than the devil's peace. When the dog is kept out of doors, he howls to be let in again. If you stiff-arm Satan, he's not going to take it lying down. When Satan finds a sanctified heart, he tempts with much persistence. Where there is much of God and of Christ, there are strong injections and firebrands cast in at the windows so that some who have much faith have been tempted to doubt. Have you ever questioned if you're the real thing because you struggle so much? What if the very reason you struggle so much is because you're real? We are still in enemy territory. His kingdom has come, but it's not come in its fullness. And our sinful nature, even though it's been deposed from ruling our hearts, Jesus took care of the penalty of sin, he is breaking the power of sin, 
but the presence of sin has not been eradicated yet. It's still alive and active, so we've got to make war, and we can. So we are no longer a slave or a debtor to the flesh. You can push back and resist the devil. You don't have to be carried along by the world, you know, just kind of drugged by your nose like a lackey. Our king has given us his armor, Ephesians 6. He's given us the sword of the Spirit to go on the offensive. He gives us so many resources, so much energy and strength for this battle. So how do we make war? Let's just consider a few ways, and you can consider it some more on your own. There's so many more ways we could consider. So first, by the Spirit. How do we make war? By the Spirit. Romans 7, like I said, is devoid of the Spirit. If you read through it, you realize, whoa, whoa, where'd the Holy Spirit go? No wonder he's struggling so much. The flesh is winning. But in Romans 8, Paul talks a ton about the Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you if you're in Christ. So if the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, can he give life to you and me for this battle? Look at Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you're a slave of the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, help me. Like, I'm struggling. I'm suffering here. So if you are struggling and you cry out to God, that is God's spirit welling up within you, having you cry out in the right, wrong, in, in the right direction to the right one because you belong to him. So the Spirit will remind you who you are and whose you are so that the one who you belong to, you will be reminded of all the resources that are yours at your disposal in Him. So the Spirit helps us in our weakness. As you go on in Romans 8, He's praying for us. He's interceding. Like we can be groaning. We don't even know what we need. We're just like, struggling, and the Spirit is interceding for us, helping us. And if God is for us, as Romans 8 goes along, who can be against us? And if he didn't spare his only son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with him graciously give us all things so that we can put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the flesh? So we yield to the Spirit, and we starve the flesh. Look at Galatians 5, 16 and 17. It says the same kind of thing. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. You see that internal conflict, that war, that inner warfare to keep you from doing the things you, the renewed you, want to do. So we know that the flesh has lusts, right? Has desires. Did you know that the Spirit has desires? Do you see that? The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, but the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. What does the Spirit want? He wants us to know who is for us. He wants us to know 
the resources that are ours in Christ. He wants us to believe the gospel and trust and love Jesus and follow him. So this battle, this dividedness, this conflict can be discouraging, right? But the very fact that we can't enjoy sin very long is evidence that the Spirit is present and at work. Slave to sin is not who you are anymore. It's not your true self. You are not what you used to be. John Newton, do you love that quote? I am not what I want to be. Okay, we all know that. I am not what I ought to be. Yep. I am not what I will be, but I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Which leads to another way we fight, we make war. When we fail because we will, we repent. Do you know you can fight by repentance? You, you fight by humility? It's another way to make war against the right enemy. Humble repentance. Would you turn to James 4? James chapter 4, and we won't spend a whole long time here, but I just want you to see these words and see the, the train of thought here. It's page 1012 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that, just to see how we fight by repentance. And just look at the character of God in this passage. It's just awesome. <laughs> so, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, when our passions are at war within us, that war breaks out. And we bring conflict to other people into relationships. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your selfish desires. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, do you see how if we yield this battle and submit to the flesh, we're actually fighting against God again. But then look at this. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? When we are unfaithful, he is a jealous, loving husband, and he says, Oh no, I'm coming after you. I love you too much to leave you in this mess. And then he doesn't like go, you're in the doghouse for the next two weeks. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, because he wants to lift you up. <laughs> he gives grace to the humble. We fight this battle by repentance. Stop stiff-arming the conviction of the Spirit and fighting against the Spirit and welcome that and stiff-arm your sin, and stiff-arm the devil. So, it's another way we make war, is by repentance. 
there's more. We do it by remembering and rehearsing the gospel. I'm going to skip that one, even though it's really important. We do it by the love of God in Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? Romans 8. We could talk about the armor of God. We could talk about the promises. But one more, we also make war by mortification, by crucifixion, by putting our flesh to death. So Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then, how does Paul talk about this? Again, this is normal for a Christian. I, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Think, think about these eyes. Who, okay, who are you talking about, Paul? I, the old me, has been crucified, dead, buried with Christ. It's no longer I who live, that old me, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I, the new me, live in the flesh. I, the new me, live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. So I'm going to continue to put the flesh to death, to mortify it, to crucify it. I'm going to starve it out. I'm not going to try to reason with the flesh or pacify it or coddle it. I'm going to starve it and crucify it. So we don't need to just control or manage or reason or reason with or moderate the flesh. You can't negotiate with it. <laughs> don't try to convince it. Don't try to bargain with it. Flesh is not reasonable. It's a black hole. It's insatiable. One more look. You know, that, that addiction. One more. Well, just one more and then I'll stop. It does not work to pacify it. You have to crucify it. So what is it you're feeding and what are you starving in your life? If you're going to be spiritually healthy, you've got to make war. We crucify the flesh, those selfish, sinful impulses and desires, and we submit to and trust and yield to the desires of the Spirit. On a daily basis, very practically, fears and anxiety and lust and pride and selfishness. Self-denial is the path to life. It's a freeing, life-giving thing. So, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, his desire was to be wholly free from the selfish self. Didn't work out so well. But we have been freed from the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are being freed from the power of sin, and we can fight this battle. And one day, brothers and sisters, we will be free from the presence of sin, and there's not going to be any conflict or struggle anymore. That day is coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And until then, we eat and drink and proclaim his death, his victory, until he comes. What does this table have to do with this war. Everything. <laughs> it reminds us that the decisive battle has been won. So think about it this way. I've said something like this in the past, but I think it's really helpful. If you were a POW, and you had a hidden radio, and you heard that the Allies had won, would your disposition change in the midst of the squalor that you lived in you might still be beaten again before they come and get you. 
You might nearly be starving, but everything would change if the decisive battle was won. You'd be able to hang on, right? Like, you'd probably stand up a little straighter. You'd probably actually be a little more patient and gracious with, you know, your stinky cellmates. Maybe you squirreled away a half bar of chocolate somehow that you'd obtained for a special occasion, and you would break it out and break it up among your fellow prisoners, and you taste freedom in that little morsel. Because the decisive battle is won. The outcome of the final battle is already determined. And that's what's going on right here at this table. The table celebrates the victory that has been won and the victory that is coming. And the bread and the cup is the taste of freedom that we have in Christ. And we proclaim his death until he comes and brings us full and final deliverance. Amen? All right, so if the men who are going to serve can come forward. So if you are not sure where you're at with Jesus, if you're still wrestling with these things, we're really glad that you're here. Um, maybe just allow me to draw your attention to the end of chapter 7. It'd be a really simple way to think about how someone becomes a Christian wretched man that I am. <laughs> you, you come to terms with your sin. Wretched woman that I am. Honest with God. Who's going to deliver me? I can't. Thank you for sending Jesus, trusting him as your Savior. So I'd encourage you to prayerfully consider that and come to Jesus. This table is for people who have recognized their sin and need for a Savior. They have accepted Christ and trusted Him. So if, if that's you, you've trusted Christ, you've gone public with that faith through baptism, then you are welcome at this table to eat and drink the taste of freedom and be strengthened for the battle. Okay, so we're going to distribute both elements Hold them until everyone's served, and then we'll participate together. Father, we thank you for demonstrating your love and that while we were still sinners and enemies, you sent Jesus to die for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that rather than coming to make war like we deserve, you came to declare amnesty and Give us the opportunity to lay down our arms and be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of, your, of light. So would you please encourage your people and strengthen us for the fight as we taste and see that you are good, that the victory you won is good and strong and the battle that we now fight in Christ, we cannot lose. We thank you and we pray these things in his name. Amen.